Hey there, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Movie Geeks United. We are back for another Summer of episode. This is something we do every year where we review the summer movie releases from the summer season 25 years previously. We started this series covering the summer of 1983. And guess where we are now? 1995. That's how long Movie Geeks has endured. That's a testament to us. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i'm jamie i'm here with my constant co-host adam and we're also as always joined by our great friend and esteemed film critic historian extraordinaire aaron Ada diaz hey aaron hello hello aaron glad, glad to be back glad to hear from you again okay so we're going to jump right into it because it, it seems like you know if you cover the movie year tw- uh in the 80s there were far yeah. fewer releases. So when we delve into the 90s, they released just a ton of movies. So we're going to cut the intro and all that kind of stuff, and we're going to get right into it. And I yeah. think some of these releases, uh, we pro- I-, I know I don't know what they are. Does anyone know anything about the May 2nd release, Don't Do It? I do not. No. <laughs> okay, so we took that. We took the title of film literally. Uh, a box office take of zero dollars, as I see here. So <laughs> May third is my family. That's not the. Um... Yep, my family beats Amelia. Uh, I saw it in theaters. This you know, this was released uh, what six months before Muddy Train. So this is the first. This is actually the the first time. Uh, I see Jennifer Lopez in a movie, and it's just, it follows this uh, multi generational uh, Mexican American family in this in this one house in East LA, and it's kind of a who's who of uh, of uh, Latino actors: Jennifer Lopez, Jimmy Smith, Edward James Olmos, Isai Morales, Constance Marie. Beautifully photographed by Ed Lockman. A lot of reds, a lot of blues. Uh, one of Jimmy Smith's best performances, Galo's terrific. Yeah, I echo those sentiments. I love this movie. Uh, I saw it. Uh, this was a limited release in a lot of areas, and I lived in the uh, Charlotte, North Carolina area. We did not get this in uh, the A-list theaters, shall we say. It was about August. We got them, and it finally came to the the, uh, the second-run houses, and that's where I caught it. Mm-hmm. And just uh, loved, loved, loved this movie because uh, I'm a big fan of Gregory Nava. I think El Norte's a masterpiece, of course. And if you're a fan of that, uh, my family, my, uh, me, Familia, it just uh, so 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 well made and uh, moving, very incredibly moving. Uh, great movie, yes. That same day, Panther. Yeah. Was that about the Black <laughs> Panthers? 
Yeah, it's Black Panther. It's Mario Van Peebles' right. Black Panther movie. And uh, right. it's yep. coming out three years after Malcolm X. Mario Van Peebles, terrific, really good director, and even a good director. And this was his follow-up to uh, Posse. And uh, at the time, you know, if you followed Mario Van Peebles, you were kind of excited because you thought this was going to be an actual subject matter for Mario Van Peebles to tackle the Black Panther. And unfortunately, it just didn't work. He uh, uh, it was a very kind of uh, conventional screenplay, very watered-down screenplay. The actors do their best. The two main guys who play the the Black Panthers, uh, Marcus Chong and uh, I forget who the other guy is. I mean, they're fine, but it really doesn't. It just, it's all surface on a on the Black Panther party. It's, it's been other better stuff that's dealt with them, documentary and so forth. Uh, okay, in the uh, May fifth is. Uh... Lawrence Kasdan's romantic comedy. This was the era of the Meg Ryan dominated romance comedies. French Kiss with Kevin Klein. It was kind of her return to the, to the rom-com genre. Uh, the year before, the summer before she'd done, uh, what do you call it? When a Man Loves a Woman. Uh, so she was trying to get that Oscar. Right. And Courage Under Fire was the next year, right? Yeah. Right. So this was her return to her genre. Uh, she kind of modernized with Hammer and Sally. And uh, Kasdan, uh, Kasdan struck the screen on. It's not a bad film. Uh, in, you know, this is the 90s. So this is you know, the golden era of the modern rom-com. And so uh, we, we're getting a lot of these every year. Uh, this is one of the better ones, 95. Uh, it's good. It has a really fun, uh, hip performance by, uh, Kevin Klein as, uh, the Frenchman that, uh, he's swearing off with. So, uh, I like it. It's frothy. It's nice. It's, uh, it's light casting. It's a much better film than Fighter. He just come off of it. So it's a return to form. Yeah, I remember. I, I, uh, I just remember so little of it. It's been so long since I saw it. Uh, I remember thinking it was it was perfectly fine. But yeah, it was. Uh, I know there was a uh, Wyatt Earp was such a box office disaster, and uh, it was. I guess it was good that he was able to kind of rebound with that. There's a rom com later in the month that I think is a better offering. So when we get to that, I, uh, I'll point that out. Die Hard with a Vengeance. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, uh, French Kiss. Um, <laughs> I remember thinking when I saw it, particularly that train scene where she's lactose intolerant or whatever that was, uh, I remember thinking uh, how much the strain was showing in Meg Ryan because, I mean, her her appeal in these movies depended upon her just endless, boundless charm. And Mm -hmm. uh, it seemed like I could really see an effort in trying to be charming. (laughs) And, and, quirky, <laughs> and quirky and sometimes that's a result of writing but I, I wonder how much of her heart was uh was in it after she touched something like when a man loves a woman you know the challenge of that spasm spasm no 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 look at the scenery how beautiful you see the cows no, over there please, not the cows not the cows oh i just ate that cow God. here it is here we go Lactose intolerance! 
Okay, May 10th is A Little Princess. Terrific movie. The follow-up uh, by Alfonso Cuaron. Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, 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 Cuaron. Yeah, that's Cuaron. I thought the girl in the movie was amazing. I thought, wow, there's a farewell scene early on where the father's uh, basically saying goodbye to her. Like, I'll, I'll be back, but I got to go do this. I got to go to, to go fight the war. And that is it is one of the great father-daughter scenes of you know, in modern movies. It's terrific. May 12th, Adam. Opens with a movie that you just said that you revisited, Crimson Tide. I did. I did. Um, directed by Tony Scott, of course. Uh, he of Top Gun fame, as we all know, and so many others. But this is kind of a return to Top Gun territory. That's why I mentioned Top Gun, because uh, you know it's the military, and uh, you've got Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington. Uh, Gene Hackman is the commander of the sub, and... Denzel is the XO executive officer, and so uh, the, the the film is about the tensions that arise between the two men when uh, they get an incomplete message, and they're not sure whether they should fire a missile or not. Gene Hackman wants to fire the missile, and Denzel says, no, we should wait, and so there's a, a mutiny on board, and there's all kinds of tensions, and there's missiles that are fired by uh, other submarines at them, and they have all kinds of uh, just – uh, it's a very, very tense film, um, uncredited dialogue from T- Quentin Tarantino. He made an uncredited contribution, and some of the pop cultural uh, stuff that's in the film, the dialogue, the, there's a, uh, some, uh, some dialogue about um, it's Star Trek references, yeah, the Kurt Jurgens reference early in the film. So, uh, but, but a very solid, very well well put together film, uh, very, very tense, uh, and uh, it holds up quite well. I think. Yeah, I love Crimson uh, Tide. I've always loved Crimson Tide, but first and foremost because, uh, I mean, it features two of the great actors going head to head, and and that's the entire movie. I mean, it's not just it's not a Pacino De Niro meet for one scene of heat. This is like uh, almost like an acting masterclass watching the two of them for two straight hours in some very meaty scenes. And I thought oh, yeah. that not only was that a, 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 a to the great benefit of the movie, but it's also something that made the movie incredibly unique because it's not uh, – it feels like you're watching an action movie, but when you think about it, um, it's not a typical action movie, especially of the kind that Bruckheimer and Simpson were involved in where there were – aerial acrobatics and all kinds of street chases and all this exciting stuff they're they're contained in that environment and so those performances very much carry the tension that the movie gives you captain i cannot concur repeat my command sir we don't know what this message means our target package could have changed you repeat this order or i'll find somebody who will no, you won't, sir. You're relieved to your position. Cobb, remove Mr. Hunter from the control room. Get no, Lieutenant sir. Zimmerman here no, right sir. now. No, sir. I do not concur, and I do not recognize your authority to relieve me under command under Navy regulations. Cobb, arrest this man Captain and get him out of here. Under operating procedures governing the release of nuclear weapons, we cannot launch our missiles unless both you and I agree. Cobb, now, what are you waiting for? Authority, sir. This is expressly why your command must be repeated. It requires my assent. I do not give it. And furthermore, you continue upon this course and insist upon this launch without confirming this message. No. First, I will be Chief of the boat. Back by the rules of precedent. Captain, commanding officer, command. 
regulations. I order you to place the XO under arrest six under the Navy regulations. I say again, I order you to place the XO under arrest on the charge of mutiny. Come! Captain, please, the XO is right. We can't launch unless he concurs. I remember seeing it theatrically when it came out the opening weekend, and I really didn't have as, as high of an expectation for it as uh, I, I was quite surprised. It was a lot more than what – I think it's one of the best films that Tony Scott directed, actually, to be honest. I think it's uh, one at the top of his resume. This really caps off kind of a Tony Scott's best streak. Uh, I, mean, I was always a good Tony Scott fan, but his streak of uh, Last Boy Scout, True Romance, and Crimson Tide – that really is kind of a, it's a, it's triple crown of like, you know, this truly giving you all sides of what he is capable of doing as a director. You know, I think this was his next film after True Romance, was it not? And so I, maybe that's the Tarantino yeah. uh, connection. Maybe mm-hmm. they, uh, because they had, you know, he did such a good job with that Tarantino script. Maybe, I think that's probably why he brought him in to do some uncredited polishes on the script. I, I think that probably was a, there was a connection there. Sure. That same day, the Englishman who went up the hill but came down the mountain. Is is that you, Grant? That is you, Grant. That it is, is. That is continuing his uh, his all shucks uh, streak, and it's literally, I guess you could say, the uh, the calm before the storm, um, because uh, the scandal had not broken yet. And so it was, just, uh, you know, it had this quirky little title, this, or big title, and uh, Hugh Grant. Uh, I went and saw it theater. It reminded me of those kind of uh, early 80s Bill Forsyth movies. And uh, on that yeah. level, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a good, it's a good little, quirky little uh, British comedy. It seems, uh, like, it sees like it was definitely, uh, like I'm one, I, I don't know when in his career he made this, but it seems like um, after Four Weddings hit, that they were really excited to make this a summer, a, a summer movie. I mean, it's not your usual suspect for a summer movie, but they probably thought that they could really capitalize on Grant's newfound fame. What is Gordy? Yeah. Gordy is a family movie or an adventure movie? Yeah, it was a Disney, yeah. Disney, Disney movie. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was rushed. It was rushed into release because, I, if I remember the story correctly, because they knew Babe was coming. Uh, it's, a, it's a talking pig movie. And mm. it, it's basically it's one of those classic examples of Here's how you do something poorly, and here's how you do something well. May 12th, the Perez family, which is the Miranair movie, right? Uh, Now, I remember uh, Pacino did this great, because I was crazy about Pacino at the time. He did this great photo shoot with Annie Leibovitz and Vanity Fair. I think it was their annual Hollywood issue, and I still remember distinctly the photo. He was in a pinstripe suit, and it was a black-and-white photo, and apparently on that during that shoot, Miranair was wooing Pacino to star as the uh, in the Alfred Molina part in the Perez family because she really wanted to work with him. And ultimately, obviously, he turned it down because Molina got it. This was, you know, a lot of um, the time in the magazines, a lot of reviews were com- were com- putting this movie together with Mi Familia. And uh, Mi Familia would get in the better reviews. And they're they're really reviewing the two, and Perez family was actually kind of getting mixed reviews, and uh, I saw it also, and uh, 
it's uh it's actually also a good film. It's a it's a more slight movie than obviously Me Familiar. Uh it has a very uh narrow it has a narrow scope, but uh, the performances by Angelica Houston and Molina and um I think I think Paul Terry is in that also. Uh is are yeah, really he good, is. but I mean yeah, they're really great performance and it's it's truly underrated, and people comment out to they comment because she gained weight. But Marissa Tomei is just spectacular in that film. It really is. She's really incredible in that movie. Uh, so yeah, Mira and Aaron, She's always she's had a very up and down um, uh, career. I, I guess this was her follow up to um, uh, Mississippi Masala, which is probably her best movie, uh, the one with the Denzel. Uh, but Perez Family, it's it's a modest film, but. Uh, it, it's, it, it is worth seeking out if you can find it. Well, skip that May 13th one. Let's go straight to May 19th. Die Hard with a Vengeance. Let me tell you. I, Let's hear it. I, I love the first, obviously. The first is probably first in terms of my preference. I don't like the second, as we've discussed in a previous summer show. Mm-hmm. But I, I really love Die Hard with a Vengeance. It's one of those, like Roger Ebert always says, one of those bruised forearm movies. And uh, <laughs> I think I think Die Hard with a Vengeance is great. Hey, 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 where are you going? Come here, what are you doing? What are you doing? Oh, what are you doing, Watch your mouth. You want to kind of juvenile hall for a Butterfingers? Is that it? Look around, man. All the cops are into something. It's Christmas. You could steal City Hall. Uh, it, it is good. It's a, it's a good, solid uh, action movie. Uh, it's not going to replace my memories of the first movie. I, I'm with you. The second one is a little bit of a letdown, although I do think it has its charms. It, or I thought it had its charms at the time. It has kind of dated uh, a little bit and not, has not aged particularly well of the of the sequels. This one probably has, has aged as well as any of them, I think. Um, but – yeah, it, it was a fun time. It was a good. Uh, they brought back John McTiernan, who helmed the original film, of course, and uh, it was it was good to have him back in charge. And I'm kind of mixed on it. I mean, in, I'm mixed, in this sense, it's 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 extremely watchable. I, it's it's the last one that you know when it does come on TV and Channel Surfing, I will stop and watch it for a while, as opposed to the next two sequels, you know, four and five. I uh, I don't even bother watching those. Uh, these I, I I only really watched these first three, uh, really, and um, and yes, God McTiernan is a plus. I I do think one of the problems with the film, uh, one of the, is that in a key difference is that it does not have Jan de Bont as DP like on the first one, and so mm-hmm. uh, it's missing a little bit of that uh elegance that Jan de Bont would bring to the framing in some of these set pieces. So they're a little uh clunky i feel at times and uh i just feel uh there's been a well it is a watchable uh programmer of an action movie and it is fun and it has some of the uh you know it it's it reminds you of the greatness of the first one uh at times it has some of that but i i what i i have noticed in the recent couple of years is this kind of a reevaluation of it and this kind of uh, placing it as one of the last great uh, practical effects action movies, uh, as if it's like that gives it a little more cachet. Uh, it's still a 1995, you know, we were still getting 
an action movie every other week that were kind of just these programmers. And Die Hard with a Vengeance kids had a better uh, uh, IP uh, value. So, I mean... Yeah, I mean, yeah, you mentioned sure. the cinematography, but um, uh, I I didn't feel the loss of Jan de Bond. The cinematographer is Peter Menzies, I think. I'm not looking it up right now, but I remember interviewing him years ago. And I always liked the look of Die Hard 3 because I thought it had a very crisp look. Much like... Uh, whatever his name is, Russell Carpenter, the DP for Cameron on movies like True Lies. And I mean, there's, there's some of his movies too that look, uh, there's no better word than crisp. Um, so I always thought it had a, appealing photography. They had a hard time with the, with the, uh, conclusion of the movie. They had to reshoot. I remember. And it's all, it was almost like uh, there was no way the conclusion of the movie could uh live up to the just the wall-to-wall action that had preceded it it felt like you were already exhausted by the time the the final scene came on so that i guess they weren't happy with the original thing that they shot so they shot something else but i i don't think it would have mattered either way yeah. and holds up fairly fine well. It's a great action movie. Come on, Adam. <laughs> I like it. I, I like it. I'm not saying I don't like it. Uh, uh, I, I just, I, the original is the best. and Yeah. It's, I mean, it's coming a week after Crimson Tide. Crimson Tide's a more supremely satisfying action movie. Uh, okay, May 19th, forget, also the same day as Die Hard with a Vengeance. Forget Paris, Billy Crystal, Deborah Winger. I don't remember other, much about this. I mean, I, you know, it, it's got a standard kind of romantic comedy thing but, plot going for it. All I remember is like the bird on Deborah Winger's head or yes, something. This, this is one of those. So this is the other rom-com that, that I, I, I mentioned earlier that came out the same month. And um, and uh, this is Billy Crystal, probably his best directing. And it's a little over. It is overstuffed because Billy Crystal's trying to out Woody Allen, Woody Allen, and he just can't do it. Uh, but having said that, there are comic set pieces here that are pretty, uh, I, at least in the theater, that are just uh, unbelievable. And w- one is the, the bird sequence. Uh, I remember vividly that being one of the, uh, I, I'd never heard an audience laugh that uproariously in a theater uh, with that sequence. And uh, it has this unique uh, framing device. Basically, it's this... Uh, these three sets of uh, uh, two sets of uh, friends, these two sets of couples, uh, doing a post mortem on on their uh, on their friends who have broken up, and, and so we're getting these flashbacks on their the the history up and down of their relationship, and uh, so it, it creates some tension that way. And the friends are funny, uh, uh, Richard Mazur and John Spencer, great John Spencer, and. And Julie Kavner, the one who is kind of a, a, a bit of a pill, and she's written that way is Cynthia Stevens, and that's kind of her, that's kind of her character, uh, that the kind of character she always plays. Uh, but yeah, uh, oh, and Joe Montagna, Joe Montagna is another uh, friend with Kathy Moriarty, and so it's these three couples, and they're just telling these stories. And so that's a good structure. That's a fun structure that Crystal uh, plays with. And it was just good to see Deborah Winger uh, in a comic form. She hadn't been done. She hadn't done real comedy like this since really Terms of Endearment. So that was fun. Yeah, I, I thought it was per- perfectly serviceable. I 
saw it in a theater, but I have not seen it in 25 years, and I don't remember a whole lot about it. I remember thinking, oh, it was fine. Uh, it was good to see her in a, a comedy, like like you mentioned. Um, I, I remember that, and I know that uh, uh, this was, I think, Billy Crystal's first directing effort after the uh, failure of Mr. Saturday Night, I believe. So this was... Yeah. Um, okay, Little Odessa, which is a Tim Roth... Crime film well, directed by James Gray. That, that's James Gray's directorial debut. So that's mm. its footnote mm-hmm. in film history. It's a it's a gritty little family drama thriller set in um set in the uh, Orthodox Jewish community. Vanessa Redgrave's in it. She's pretty chilling uh, in a small role. And Tim Roth, Edward Furlong are really good. It, it was a modest film, but you could already tell that the, whoever, you know, the guy, this guy who wrote and directed it, he was only 25, 26 at the time, uh, he already had a very strong uh, visual style and a style of storytelling, and uh, it would only um, it would only grow as the years went on. Now, mm-hmm. I am not a diehard James Gray fan. Uh, I, I like a couple of films like We Own the Night and Two Lovers. Uh, I'm not a big you know that uh, the one in the Amazon. Uh, I'm not a big, I'm not a big fan of that one, but I do like some of his from The Yard is another one I like. God, I love We Own the Night. I really do. He just did Ad Astra, right? And I did, yeah, I, I which... did, yeah, I did watch Ad Astra, and man, what a gorgeous movie to look at. I don't think it amounts to much, but it was beautiful to watch. But uh, Braveheart uh, dominated the weekend of May 24th. Mm-hmm. What can we say about Braveheart? Does, does, who who has revisited it in recent years? It's been about a decade for me, I must say. Um, you know, it's it has its moments. Uh, I can I can see its failings more clearly now than I could when it first was released. I was pretty enamored with it when it when it uh, when I first saw it, but I can see some of the Mel Gibson tendencies. Uh, his um, uh, since you know, Passion of the Christ has come along since then. You can kind of see some of the patterns and his uh, cinematic manipulations, I guess you would say, in his directing style. And so uh, it's it's a little bit more evident than than it was back then. But but still, there are some moments in it. There's some uh, some of the battle scenes are incredibly staged. Of course, I don't have to tell anybody that. And uh, y- you know, it's um, uh, maybe doesn't quite hold up as well as some other best picture winners, which again, this is something that makes this movie interesting is the fact that it went on to win best picture of the year and it was released in May, which we typically don't see. So, um, anyway, well, it's and, one of those uh, good old fashioned uh, Hollywood epics too. Yeah. And, and Mel Gibson was at the time, uh, beloved. And I, I'm sure it was a rewarding of him, uh, of an actor crossing over into directing and something on such an ambitious scale. I know there was a great deal of um, outcry about uh, uh, from the uh, from the uh, LGBT uh, community. Oh yeah, about mm-hmm. the film. Uh, the The action sequences are superbly staged. He knows how to rouse an audience. It's obvious from watching the movie. the The score from James Horner, I think, is one of, if not his best. Um, it's, it's gorgeous to look at the location work in it. I mean, it's something that as, um, 
in terms of rousing an audience and knowing how to play an audience, it's Braveheart did it better than Alexander did. Oh, definitely, yes. Thing about Bra- uh, Braveheart, I, I did see in theater. I was I remember at the time in Prague. This was the second of the three kind of medieval sword films that were coming out that year. Uh, it was coming off of a uh, in March. We March April we had a Rob Roy, which was my favorite of the three. Uh, and I was the only one to get nominations in the acting category. Tim Roth, great villain, and had Liam Neeson, Jessica Lange, and so forth. But Braveheart, it's a weird movie in that it, uh, I admire the craftsmanship and the, the the momentum of it. But I have only seen it probably maybe twice in 25 years. I saw it obviously when it came out. I've seen it like once or twice since then. Uh, it's not a film like other people. Who, who are big fans of it that I, I return to and when it, it's not one that when I'm channel surfing and it pops up it's not one that I stop to watch it's yeah. just it's a uh, it's more exhausting than uh entertaining if that's the thing uh, mm-hmm. I I much prefer Gibson's uh first film that he directed Man Without a Face I think that's a uh, a more gent- a gentler uh, piece of uh, filmmaking, and as far as action filming, and I I actually think it's not not a, not action... a word you associate with Bo Gibson's directorial efforts. It's generally is gentle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually think his best action filmmaking is Apocalypto. Uh, I would agree. That's a I would that's agree. A, that's a pure action piece of action filmmaking. Um, so brave. Braveheart is one of those. It's it's a weird it's a weird movie. Ninety uh, five is a weird movie. Weird movie year when it comes to awards time. I mean, uh, a fun fact I'll point out here now, and we'll point it out as it goes along. Four of the five best picture nominees are summer releases. Wow. Mm-hmm. That is true. Also on that day, Tales from the Hood. Good film. Underrated horror movie. It's an anthology film. Rusty Cundiff, this is a follow-up to uh, the previous year's Fear of a Black Hat, and it's uh, it's it's a it's an anthology film, like Tales from the Crypt or Creep Show, but uh, dealing uh, with uh, African-American stories, if you will. Uh, Tales from the Hood, it's set in a, uh, uh, what do you call it, a funeral home with uh, Clarence Williams III yeah. as the uh, head of the, the, uh, the mortuary, and a couple of guys come to a Robert and he tells them these scary stories and a couple of them are really really uh creepy and real neat twists on like standard uh stories there's one uh involving police brutality uh where cops white cops they kill a black man and he comes back uh to haunt them to hunt them down that's a great that's a fun one there's a David Duke one David Duke inspired one with Corbin Bernstein as a racist. Uh, the final story is really, is the one that's really haunting about, and it's kind of a take on uh, a Clockwork Orange on dealing with reprogramming. Uh, so yeah, Tales from the Hood, uh, really, really, it's a, it, I mean, it's something you had not seen before and you haven't seen since, a you know, African-American themed horror anthology film. Yeah, it also features, I think, the final film appearance of the Character actress um, Roseanne Cash. Uh, I had the uh, I had the laser disc. It was a good laser disc. Mm. 
Yeah, I remember seeing the Laserdisc in stores back when I used to collect those. Okay, May 26th, we have Casper with what's-her-name? Christina Ricci, right? This was a Spielberg production. Spielberg production, Brian Soberling directing. Right. A weird movie in that the the main star, Casper, is a dead child. But there's never seems to bother, there's never seemed to bother anyone who viewed it because the movie made a hundred million dollars. You know, there's never was like a, you know, one of those talk, you know, icky or touchy talking points involving this film. Kids didn't seem to be bothered by it and adults didn't seem to be bothered by it. Obviously, it's you know Spielberg production, Brad Sterling directing, and one of these kind of showcases for the best of the what special effects could do up to that point, especially digital effects. And so it's just a lot of jack-in-the-box kind of stuff. And on that level, it was a lot of fun at the time. Honey! Honey, what? Dad, Dad, I saw a ghost. It was a real ghost. It was real Slow down. Ghost. What are you saying? I saw a ghost. And it had a head, and it was round, and it was white and see-through. And... Honey, no, maybe... Dad, please. Do not think I'm as crazy as I thought you were. I promise. No, no, no. no, no. But remember, ghosts can't hurt you, okay? They're simply spirits with unfinished business, all right? Let's just see about this ghost, all right? Come here. Come on. Check here. uh, See? No ghost there. Then we can check over here. the gags are pretty funny i think your favorite actor dan Aykroyd shows up in his ghostbusters uniform for a gag uh uh the lady from poltergeist uh, rubenstein shows up for a gag uh i mean uh the best stuff is the uh the three other casper's uncles the three other ghosts uh stinky stretch and uh fatso they're kind of this greek chorus of mayhem and they provided kind of the best laughs in the in the in the film. Why does so I'm, re- I'm reviewing the cast list and it says that Mel Gibson and Clint Eastwood are in it? They might. I think they. I think they had like these kind of a blink and you miss it cameos kind of like thing. Huh. Johnny Mnemonic. Here's here's another movie I know about. Know about this movie, but I haven't seen it. Johnny Mnemonic, which was Keanu Reeves, right? So this was his first uh, action film uh, follow up to Speed. And it was at the time, and so another another trend of this summer that we'll see throughout is uh, computers tech, and uh, here was the first of the computer movies, and uh, directed by uh, Longo, the uh, the the, art, the artist who does in like futuristic uh, uh, drawings and so forth, and uh, it has a kind of a neat idea at the center of it, but it's just so poorly executed and just doesn't have the excitement that you would expect from a high-tech thriller. There's one fun sequence that was at the time, and that's a sequence where Johnny Mnemonic, that's Ken Reeves, he has to plug into the, quote-unquote, plug into the internet. This is still a novel thing back in 95, and he's literally 
able to move things around on in the internet as he's plugged in, and it's a, it's a neat concept. Obviously, it, it doesn't hold up now, but uh, it's fun to watch. It says that Michael Dana did the music for it in the director's cut Japanese release, but Brad Fidel did the the general release score. So the direct director must not have liked the original score and had him replace it for the or maybe vice versa. I don't know. Also on that date, Mad Mad Love, which is I think Chris O'Donnell and Drew Barrymore. I saw this also. Uh, this was interesting to see because it was Antonia Bird was a director, and this was her uh, other film from that year, uh, from like three months earlier, two months earlier. She had done the movie um, uh, Priest, yeah, minus Roach, which is a great forgotten, controversial Miramax movie. Uh, so here mm-hmm. is her kind of. Uh, you know, I guess bid at the mainstream, and um, it's a modest film, but um, does contain a really good uh, live wire. Dude, where are you moving? You're you're moving all around it. What's happening to the sound? No, no, sorry about that. Okay. Good. Live wire, Drew Barrymore performance. So. Uh, yeah, it's uh, I remember she she suffered from, I mean, what do they call it bipolar today? Did they call it bipolar then? I mean, she had she suffered from mental illness, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. They were on the lamb or something, right? Wasn't that yeah. the way it goes? We're on to June now. Thank God, June second, <laughs> June second, Bridges of Madison County. Let me say that uh, I have I have rarely cried that much in a in a movie theater than I was when uh, Meryl Streep had her hand on that car door. I swear to God, that movie got me. I had no expectations that it would, because you don't expect that kind of emotionality from a Clint Eastwood movie. But um, I was totally enraptured with it, with the exception of the subplot with the with the kids. And I thought that the kids were just, especially the one that played the son, was just a god-awful actor. And uh, every breakaway from their love story, uh, I think, was regrettable. I would agree. I would totally agree. Uh, the the stuff between Clint Eastwood and Meryl Streep is just so so wonderful that you're able to forgive it. I, I revisited this one a couple of months ago, and uh, it, uh, it there's a lot of great stuff there. And I don't think there was there wasn't a whole lot in Clint Eastwood's career before this that would have prepared us for what he did with this film, as far as the the change of pace. We hadn't yeah. seen this kind of a, it's like a film pl- from him as a director. I don't play think. Misty for me if the chick wasn't psycho. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it it has a lot going for it, and I, I know the book. Look, they had to do something, I guess, because the book is so thin and there's not a lot there, and so they had to beef it up somehow. And I guess adding the subplot with the kids was the only way they could could get a reasonable running time. But uh, yeah, there's. There's some really beautiful tender moments there, and it's something I think a lot of us can relate to. You know, a great film, one of Eastwood's best. Uh, you know, Eastwood was in a good pocket right here. Uh, Unforgiven, Perfect World, and ending with uh, Madison uh, County. Uh, great performance, and just probably um, Meryl Streep's best performance of the nineties. Uh, one of her best performances of her career uh i had read the book actually at the time i i, 
actually bothered. I had actually read that book, and it's a really uh, faithful adaptation of the material. But it's also the rare instance where the movie, I think, is better uh, is actually better than its source material. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, there's yeah. there's some there's, sure. there's something very tangible about how the film deals with memory and. And regret, and it was, and it was refreshing how in the in the relationships that uh, there was no uh, bitterness or animosity. I mean, even towards the end of her husband's life, he, he told her, "I know you wanted a better life, you know, or, or different life. I, I hope I, I hope I didn't let you down as a man." Uh, yeah, just kind of beautiful sentiment in that movie. Um, also, on that date. Okay, which one you want to talk about? We got Fluke, The Glass Shield, Love and Human Remains, and Pushing Hands. What do we have to say about <laughs> any of these? Well, um, I can uh, I can speak to two of these things. Fluke um, is actually is a underrated kind of family film, and it's uh, it's a good film for kids to see, but it really comes at the topic of mortality in a odd way. You wouldn't think it, it wouldn't you wouldn't think it work. But it does, and that uh, you know, it's the, the father dies in the first reel, and is reincarnated as the family dog, as a, as a dog that the family takes in, and they don't, you know, and we hear the dog's thoughts that, that from the father that the father's uh, inside the dog, and it's Matthew Modine, and uh, he's kind of observing his family mourn him, but you know, grow, you know. Uh, go through the stages of loss and mourning, and it—I uh, don't know—it's a—it's an odd premise, but somehow it kind of is very touching at times. Uh, so how? Why is this one better than Jack Frost? <laughs> Jack, <laughs> Jack Frost just doesn't—it just—it's just creepy. And here it's—it's it's played more uh, down to earth. Like there's a there's a nice moment where uh, uh, the the dog. Uh, climbs into the the, the, the father's uh, chair, and no one has sat in the chair. And, and the wife says, "Oh, uh, no one sits in the chair, but he seems to like it there." And she just kind of lets the dog sit in the chair, and it's just this kind of nice little grace note that goes on. And and, so and, and the moment when they realize that it's their father reincarnated, it's the moment when they catch the dog licking its own ass. Right? Was that the? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean it's it's a weird movie but it works. <laughs> I like, and, I like uh, how Aaron just just bypasses any of those kind of comments. And Glass Shield is another one because it's uh, basically it's Charles Bur- director Charles Burnett uh, attempt mm. at uh, a main what you know I guess by his standards a mainstream uh, film. It's a uh, police procedural uh, kind of cop drama thing uh but it's done in the charles burnett style so it's very uh it's, it's dialogue driven, very talky and it's more about ideas than action and it's basically about a a, a new rookie black cop in a you know dominantly a, a white department uh white precinct and he's teamed with a another outsider a female white cop and uh He's worried. He's concerned that a local uh, agitator, Ice Cube, is being framed for a murder. So he doesn't know if he wants to 
uh, you know, rock the boat or just go along to get along. And uh, it's 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 a it's a modest film. It doesn't have the uh, you know the energy level that this material usually gets in uh, when done by you know you know the studios. But when done by Burnett, it's uh, it's done in a more thoughtful way. June 9th, Congo. Congo. Was this was that another Frank Marshall? That was Frank Marshall. Yeah. Yeah, based uh, on the um, Michael Crichton novel. Yeah. Michael Crichton novel. Uh, Critic hated this film. Uh, it did, you know, it, had, it did mixed business. I think it made like sixty, seventy million dollars. Uh, I'm, I, I, I totally viewed it as a guilty pleasure. Uh, I believe it's, uh, I can't remember, it's Joe Don Baker or Fred Alton Thompson is the evil corporate Baker. executive. Yeah. Baker, Baker. Uh, he's awesome. Tim Curry. You know, Joe uh, Don Baker is still alive. I, when, when, when I was, uh, when I was putting together the yearbook series early on, I was talking to the writer of one of those movies, Adam at 6am. And, uh, he's been out of the business for a long time, but, and Joe Don Baker's in that movie. It's from 1970. And, and he was telling me other people I could get a hold of. And he said, you can get a hold of Joe Don Baker. And I said, Joe Don Baker passed away. And he was like, he did? <laughs> and then I looked and I was like, no, he's actually still alive. Uh, Tim Curry's great in the movie. Ernie Hudson is doing kind of a uh, great kind of a Cary Grant impersonation. And um, this was uh, the first and last time that I liked Laura Linney. Uh, for about a decade. I wasn't a Laura Linney fan for about uh, a decade after this movie. Uh, I liked her in Congo, and then I didn't like her uh, for almost a decade. Uh, she's good here, but other than that. Uh, so Congo, it's a guilty pleasure. The special effects are totally 1995 edition, including the lava and the talking uh, gorilla. Uh, it's a lot of fun. I wonder how she would react if, if somebody approached her and said, I loved you in Congo. <laughs> Party girl with Parker Posey. That's a lot of peas. Yes. Uh, <laughs> this is one of those Sundance hits that they're, you know, part of the counter programming in the summer. Uh, and, yeah. and they're, you know, constantly trying to make Parker Posey into a breakout uh, star. She, you know, obviously uh, Dazing and Fuse was two years earlier. So now she's getting her lead in some indie roles. Uh, this and uh, what's another one? Uh, the House of Yes is another one that's going to come up in uh, the following year. And uh, The Last Supper, I think she's in. Uh, she never got the big breakout role she deserved. Yep. Uh, Party, Party Girl, though, is a really you know fun, funky little indie, mid-90s indie movie. Kind of a she's playing kind of this Edie Sedgwick type party girl, you know, who gets admired in, into the the party scene and uh it's a fun movie uh it's a sundance it, i mean it's a true snapshot of 90s mid 90s sundance movie but unlike others from that genre around that time this one's still uh it's still fun to look at the next movie i absolutely adore it's smoke it's from wayne wang uh it's just um I love the writing. I love the fact that it's about people. Um, it's 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 only about people. It's about people sitting around and talking and 
philosophizing and it's got a great great cast with William Hurt and Harvey uh, Keitel and uh, Forrest Whitaker and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was his uh, follow-up to uh, yeah, Dollar Club. Uh, yeah, Smoke Smoke was good. And this is one of those rare movies. I mean, I think it's the, the only film that I can think of that because it was such an art house hit in that, in that summer, he rushed and did a sequel yeah. and got it out in, in uh, October. And the sequel, while not uh, really that good, the sequel is fascinating to look at just as a companion piece to uh, to smoke, uh, blue in the face. Right. And that one mm-hmm. had Michael J. Fox in it, right? Michael J. Fox, Lou Reed. Yeah. Uh, William Hurt didn't come back. It was Harvey Keitel was like kind of a front and center because he, well, I mean, he's the head of the cigar, the tobacco shop. Yeah, it's such a great movie. And that the ending of that movie, the when when they create one of the stories they tell during the movie, um, set to the Tom Waits song, it's just a, it's a great movie about people. My a, my favorite scene is uh, is uh, Keitel showing William Hurt his photo albums. Yeah. That he's been uh, he's been taking the same snapshot from the same place every day at the same time for for years. And he just had these these photo albums of literally the the same image at the same time, and he but every picture is different, and he's just showing him every photo album. And I don't, there's just something very uh, mysterious and kind of uh, moving about that. Yeah, thing. which is also what the movie is about. I mean, it's a it, it seems to be about everyone has a story, um, mm-hmm. and that's what those pictures were about too. The people passing by the smoke shop. Where did they come from? What were they? Where were they going? It's yeah. you know. <laughs> They're all the same. They're all the same, but each one is different from every other one. You got your bright mornings and your dark mornings. You got your summer light and your autumn light. You got your weekdays and your weekends. You got your people in overcoats and galoshes, and you got your people in t-shirts and shorts. Sometimes the same people, sometimes different ones. Sometimes the different ones become the same, and the same ones disappear. The earth revolves around the sun, and every day, the light from the sun hits the earth at a different angle. I, I'm a big fan of that writer, uh, the guy who script, uh, Paul Oster. Paul Oster. Uh, I'm My a, favorite uh, of his is uh, the music of Chants from two years earlier. Yeah, I like that My too. favorite yeah. Paul. Uh, that's good but he's a great novelist i mean i've been reading his novels for the better part of 20 years a friend of mine turned me on to his uh to his work as a novelist wow he's uh, there's some great stuff there so it's no surprise that this movie would work as well as it does he's a great writer that i don't think enough people know about so. june 10th what do we think about pocahontas in the disney canon uh well this is my daughter's favorite, favorite. Is it really? <laughs> it was when she was a child. When she was, really? uh, yeah. This is the uh, Disney really doing that left turn and like, okay, trying to be a little more serious minded in their uh, animation. This was a real uh, attempt at that. Uh, there, there was an, you know, some inkling of that in Lion King, but here this was a real one. And the, the best thing about Pocahontas, I mean, I know now people probably uh, want to cancel it for various reasons. No, of course. Um, 
I don't think it's. I don't think it. I don't. I think it is worth seeing. Uh, the drawing of the uh, the nature sequences uh, is still some of the best hand drawn animation they they've ever done. Uh, I mean, it it it, it rivals the, the the Bambi Bambi imagery, uh, the trees that are drawn in Pocahontas, um, and uh, it's very uh, uh, you know it'd be interesting to see you know they're they're in this you know craze they're in this you know boom to uh, do live action versions of all their films. I'm curious if they'll ever uh, touch this one and re and uh, redo it you know. Uh, well, it, it, only, of, it only made three hundred fifty million dollars, so I don't think it's enough to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. So, so yes, but like I said, it, there's you know there's a movement probably to cancel it, not only because of uh, you know representation, but John Smith voiced by Mel Gibson. That's uh, oh, yeah. that's a little awkward now. Uh, I really like the scene I, where he calls Pocahontas sugar tits. I thought that was. <laughs> well, I yeah. think if they do a live action version, uh, Elizabeth Warren has to make a cameo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny. That's funny. All right. June 14th, El Pustino. This was a. Uh, I remember seeing this in the theater, and it's a, another credit to. Uh, well, gosh, speak about uh, stuff you can't say anymore. Was wasn't it a Weinstein thing that he brought it yeah, here? Yeah, this was Har- This was Harvey. This, so this is the second film of the summer that was going to be a Best Picture nominee, and this was Harvey's uh, pet project of the year. Uh, and so this became the top-grossing foreign film of all time up yeah. until that point. Il Postino. He just he just knew that if he just you know promoted, 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 promoted. He could get audiences, you know, who wouldn't go to foreign film, come see this film. Yeah, but and it's also a Michael Radford movie, so it's not like it was it was from this uh, from this acclaimed foreign filmmaker. I mean, Michael Radford, I don't know where he's from, but he's he's English. Massimo Tremisi, his last uh, performance, I think he died uh, like on the eve of the uh, Italian Oscars. It was one of those films, it just had a lot of stories around the film that just made, well, let me go check, it made you curious about it, because there's all these stories about the actor dying, and the story, of the, you know, so it's just one of those things. Uh, but like I said, in 25 years, it's not a film anyone references. Even even when you're talking about Michael Radford movies, you don't reference Il Postino as like his, you know, his peak uh, so, yeah. Oh, but Ma- Maria Gracia Cucinata. Uh, uh, yeah. Who became this big Italian Sophia Loren type sex pot? Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's she's quite stunning mm-hmm. in the movie. I remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was gonna say he he, he exploited uh, the death of Massimo Troisi, his passing uh, to maximum effect. I remember in the uh, that was one of his selling points. Uh, you know, this was his final film, and he barely you know finished it and all this stuff. So I remember that being a big talking point in the press. June sixteenth, Joel Schumacher. Movie of the year. Joel Schumacher, uh, who's who was always a great friend to the show, and you know he's incredibly, he's incredibly talented and incredibly incredibly articulate about what he did and colorful, and we loved him. Batman Forever. Mm-hmm. We all went. Uh, whatever we think about the movie, we all went opening weekend. Uh, movie of the year, uh, movie box office wise. 
And um, this was the rare instance, as far as Batman movies went, where uh, I would argue that yes, Batman is the um, you know preeminent uh, thing. You know, the you know that's the IP Batman. But this was a rare instance where Jim Carrey's involvement was almost on equal footing with the Batman logo. There were probably yeah. people going to this because Jim Carrey was in it as much as they were going, oh, it's the new Batman movie. It's better than Batman and Robin, obviously. And uh, I actually, I, I have watched this in in the intervening years, and it's still, uh, there's still, it's a, it's a movie with a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, just kind of uh, gags and so forth. And this one is uh, still relatively uh, entertaining. There's a lot of stuff going on in it to hold your attention. So, yeah, I, I agree. Would you would you think that it's uh, better than uh, Batman Returns, which uh, I know it was a complete 180 from what right. Tim Burton did with that? Uh, I'll say I've watched it more than Batman Returns. I'm not as enamored with Batman Returns like a lot of people are. I know there's <laughs> a there's a whole faction who say that. Batman Returns is better than Batman, and Batman Returns is the best of these four Batman movies. Uh, I don't subscribe to that. But, you know, uh, I mean, I like Penguin in Batman Returns, but uh, Batman Returns has, has a real bad script. Batman Forever, while the script is not, you know, a, you know, top flight, uh, it's more. Uh, there's more fun stuff in it. I like the banter between Batman and Nicole Kidman. Everything Jim Carrey does is a lot of fun, and uh, Chris O'Donnell is obviously he's I think he's a fun Robin. So there's a lot of there's more good stuff going on in Batman Forever uh, than you know than uh, that that keeps you uh, that keeps you you know hooked into the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it also uh, I, I totally agree. I think Batman Forever was just uh, that was I mean a uh, Batman. And returns. I'm sorry. I think that was uh, Warner Brothers. They were just begging Tim Burton to, to come back, and they basically were promising him the world if he would come back. And so he th threw in all everything but the kitchen sink. I think any we wild idea that came to him. I think that's why it doesn't quite gel in a way that. Uh, and I, I'm with you. I think Batman Forever is, is totally fine. Um, really good. Uh, Elliot Goldenthal score. Uh, mm -hmm. He did the two scores of the Schumacher one. And uh, his Batman Forever score is really, really good, really, really, uh, you know, uh, bold and loud and, you know, just kind of all enveloping. Uh, I really like the, the Batman Forever score. And Tommy Lee Jones is, uh, you know, he's having a lot of fun as Two-Face. Uh, I love the story. Uh, you, you've heard the story about before the movie began shooting, Tommy Lee Jones confronted Jim Carrey in a restaurant and said, there'll be none of that uh, uh, ad-libbing or I won't. You know, none of your teasing going on in this uh, film. You know, basically, chastising Jim Carrey uh, before they got on set, and uh, Jim Carrey like, no problem, uh, and then proceeded to do what he does on set. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I'm sure Tom Lee Jones was pretty annoyed throughout the making of that film, which is fun. Go to June 23rd, a movie called Safe. Yes. Julianne Moore. Todd Haynes. Yes, Todd, I recently rewatched this because it's been playing on the Criterion channel. I like it. I like it fine. It was a. Um, I mean, did Julianne Moore later that year? She was in Nine Months with Hugh Grant, right? But what? What had, right. had she right. really established herself firmly before that, or was this really the kind of coming out? 
I, well, this, I think she did with shortcuts. Right. Her performance yeah, yeah. That shortcuts. Yeah. She'd been on the uh, art house uh, radar yeah. with shortcuts yeah. and uh, Vanya on Forty Second Street uh, the year yeah, before. Yeah, that, that one too. And then uh, Safe is Todd Haynes's really his coming out party, so to speak, uh, in the art house uh, arena. Because I mean, the Karen Carpenter story that was an underground thing that. Only, you know, if you were able to get a hand, your hands on it, you know, not many people had seen it. And then he had had a movie three years earlier called Poison, which yep. was this very little scene and not very good triptych kind of black and white uh, uh, movie essay. And so that wasn't, that didn't do anything. But Safe was the first one, you know, he had what, I guess, a budget of some sort. He had a movie star in some sort. And he had a real story to tell. And uh, the sound design on Safe is probably one of the most uh, distinctive ones of that year. Uh, and it, it's a it's a film that has, I think, has grown in resonance uh, over the years with its story of the, is a, you know, in the end, is she cured or is she part of a cult or is the cure worse than the disease? Uh, doesn't really... Yeah. Let you kind of yeah, there were some interesting ideas in there, and the whole the guy uh, that the guy so. that plays the guru is one of the great, you know, banal evil villains of uh of that era. He's truly uh, a real evil guy. Uh, great film, like I said, I really liked the film. Yeah, I think it's good. I watched it with the with the Haynes and Julianne Moore commentary. So it's interesting to see them kind of vacillate between talking about what the film is about and then saying, "Oh God, I remember this day. We had an hour to to film the scene in this shop." And mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's a it's a pretty entertaining commentary between the two of them, <laughs> reminiscing about and, uh, the early stages yeah. of their careers. You know, so yeah. yeah and and uh, she was already she was already a, a a very slight thin woman, and I think she lost ten fifteen pounds for this role. So it's it's mm. kind of a amazing the way the way she, the way she looks in the movie. Yeah, let's go to June thirtieth. Apollo thirteen was the biggie that the weekend. Third one best of the... picture nominee of the year or the coming out this summer. You know, I'm here in Texas, so that was a big film down here. Uh, but yeah, I mean that was a big film all around. Uh, just you know, continuing Tom Hanks's uh, streak. Well, this was his uh, follow up to uh, Forrest Gump, uh, and. Uh, yeah, I've always liked. I've always liked. This is, uh, to me, uh, uh, Ron Howard's follow-up to his best film, The Paper. So Paper and Apollo 13. I like that uh, back to back. Always been a big Apollo 13 fan. This has become one of those truly uh, channel surfing stoppers of a movie. It's just extremely well done. Yeah, it, it is. It's it's Ron Howard working at the the peak of his uh, talents, I would say. And uh, very very well done. It's an interesting, compelling story, obviously, and they're all good. And of course, the late Bill Paxton. Uh, oh yeah. So uh, you know, uh, I uh, I saw it opening weekend, and I can't say that I've I've sat all the way through it in 25 years. I, I it was just one of those movies that wasn't intended to be that way. I thought I'd get back to seeing it again, and I just never did. But I remember my reaction was, was good. If I'm not mistaken, John Sales did a rewrite on this. Uh, uncredited rewrite. I mean, he's a I think you're he's right. kind of a 
a Ron Howard uh, go-to guy on a couple of films. He was the go-to guy for a lot of people. I mean, I, I, I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure his fingerprints are probably on a lot of scripts that people are unaware of. Yeah. I think so, yeah. So he did that. And then uh, got two acting nominations out of the film. And uh, uh, the other interesting thing, this was the first film, I believe, in later, like uh, 10 years later, to get the um, the remastering in IMAX treatment. And they mm-hmm. took out like 20 minutes, and it got an IMAX release. So that was kind of interesting. Here's, so, here's yeah. something that I need to ask you, Adam. Okay. Uh, there was this article that came out a couple of weeks ago about the, of all movies, a big successful movie like Cocoon, and how you can't really find it anymore. What's up with that? Why haven't they, they issued that on Blu-ray? It seems like an obvious. Well, uh, I think part of the problem lies in the fact that at this point, and I'm not sure why before that it wasn't. I mean, it was released over in the UK on Blu-ray, and I have that one actually. Uh, but uh, domestically, no, it has it has not, and I think uh, it's not going to be because now Disney owns it. It's a 20th oh, Century Fox title, oh, is it? and oh. yeah, they do not care about. They've made it pretty pretty obvious that they have no interest in issuing any of their 20th Century Fox Blu-ray catalog titles. They don't. Uh, they, they just they don't care. So um, I don't think we'll what? be seeing it. So <laughs> is it available on Disney Plus? No, no, not at this point. Uh, there is some talk that they're going to have a, another part of Disney Plus that will require res- – it will be restricted, and you have to be over 18 or, or right. whatever to get in. You know, it's, it's, There's talk of that, but nothing official at this point. And uh, the only way to get it, I think the, uh, the it's a Eureka is the label uh, that put it out in the U.K., and if you have an all-region player, you can pick it up on Blu-ray. Unfortunately, it's bare bones, except for a commentary, I believe, is on it. But I, I do have it. I picked it up a couple of years ago. Wow. And, I, uh, I mean, real, real quick, I don't want to get too far off. No, 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 no. If, uh, if they do do this, you know, plus, you know, AG-18, you know, subset on Disney Plus thing, is that so is that where we're going to get the, the Touchstone films? Is that where we're going to get the – the ruthless peoples and the pretty women's of their catalog kind of thing. That's what the word on the street is. Uh, it's it's rumor worthy at this point, but I, I got some from from a couple of my sources that I follow. Uh, that's a rumor that popped up in the last two weeks, and he got that straight from the Disney people. So uh, you know, I, it's, it, I, it, it's, it sounds feasible. So, and is that why we never got the abyss on Blu-ray, and we never will now? Well, the story on that. That is, and I, and I get asked that question quite a bit. Uh, the story on that is that James Cameron says he hasn't that that the remastering has been done, the work has been done, but he hasn't literally he literally has not had a free 24 hours to sit down with it and go over it and uh, give it his seal of approval. Uh, that and True Lies as well. So the the remastering has has been done on both of those titles for 4K, but he it's apparently. Uh, but uh, but point, Disney flat out came out and said that they're not do they're not going to issue Fox titles. I mean they they flat out said that, right? Right, and those are Fox titles. Yeah, yeah. those are Fox titles. And but uh, I think if he approved of those, ti- I mean, if he went back and the, the transfers have been done, that's that's a fact. I would um, I would assume because I have some photos make, of would, some of the guys in. The, They'd want to make him happy because of all the Avatar movies he has coming. Yeah. yeah so. Right. Exactly. I was getting to that. So yeah. So yeah. anyway, there you go. That's, well, the, the reason that's the, the reason I asked about Cocoon was obviously they that and Apollo 13 have Ron Howard in common. And what are you know gr- growing up? Uh, growing up, I was already in my twenties, but um, 
you know, you'd always hear with every movie that Ron Howard came out with for for so many years, it was like, wow, he's he's really a director. He's a real director. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah. took, it took some going, even though he was making good films. And I think Apollo 13 probably finally put that doubt mm-hmm. to bed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess the the fun fact here. So, best picture nominee blue Apollo 13, and uh, we had a month earlier Braveheart, and then a year later. Mel Gibson and Ron Howard are going to work together on uh, Ransom. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that same day, Judge Dredd, Stallone, <laughs> yeah. should have been this big comic book movie. It still made over $100 million. It right. just wasn't good. Worldwide. Right? Yeah, I think it's yeah. worldwide. Uh, fun, the, the, the fun fact on that one, uh, well, a couple of fun facts. The director, Danny Cannon, uh, didn't have much of a directorial career and theatrical but he would go on to make his mark and make his money with the csi mm. uh, so there's that uh and uh yeah comic book movie and uh it was a weird thing i remember stallone all over selling the movie that weekend all the talk shows larry king everything and then like literally six months later he's saying yeah i kind of knew on set it was going to be a bad movie so it's like he was a good salesman because uh, you wouldn't have known it from the way he sold that movie. Uh, you know, it, it it's just it's just a mess. You know, you know this was back when they thought Rob Schneider could be a a fun sidekick movie actor, and no one realized that he's not good at anything. They hadn't discovered that yet. Uh, poor Diane Lane was still having to like still trying to find her identity with this stuff uh the one there's there's a there's a chase sequence that is actually really really good in that movie but you know you got to sit through a lot of generic stuff to get to that chase sequence yeah it's pretty pretty bad i mean there are the effects are pretty you know you know i mean they they don't they didn't skimp on the money so the effects are there and they're some of them are pretty uh uh, you know, eye popping. Well, this was but, a Disney you know, movie, was it? It was, yeah. Oh. Yeah, uh, R-rated, a hard R Disney. Mm-hmm. It's just so it'll be in that uh, over eighteen uh, section. Uh, it's just, you know, it was a lot of you know sound and fury signifying not much. Yeah. Yeah. Now does I, Max I think he... does Max von Sydow share a scene with Stallone in this movie? I mean, that's reason enough to watch it, isn't it? <laughs> Assassins is you know which came out. Uh, a few months later, it's the uh, the better Stallone '95 movie. Huh, okay, yeah, yeah. I, agree. I would agree with that, but just barely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the movie. Oh, well, you saw uh, this opening weekend, right, Aaron? Actually, this is where I draw the line. I did not okay. see this. <laughs> I did Good. Not okay, I'm glad. Me, I'm but... glad we've established the line. I was curious about what that line was. All right, so July 1st, let's go to Clueless, a movie that has lasted, and, you know, we've even this year we've seen kind of reunions pop up of the Clueless cast, minus Stacey Dash for some reason. Yeah. Uh, oh, there is a reason. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> but this movie uh, didn't make all that much money. That's the amazing thing. Uh, theatrically, it's, it was its afterlife that has sealed its yeah. reputation because it really didn't do that well. Um, well, there are a lot of movies 30? that released this summer. Yeah, it was like 57, almost 58 million. And, you know, Congo made more money 
than this did, and yet we don't talk about Congo, obviously. But uh, I just well, think it's funny that this is one of those movies yeah. that you know. But fifty-seven, you know, nearly sixty million for a uh, teen film with no stars is pretty. Uh, That's true. Uh, Spectacular. So yeah, Clueless. Uh, once again, this is, uh, there's another team movie coming up that's also a benchmark for this generation. We'll get to that later. But yeah, Clueless. Uh, really good. Good. Terrific soundtrack. Uh, intro of Paul Rudd in this, along with Alicia Silverstone. Mm-hmm. Uh, great. The best performance in the film is Dan Hedaya's father. Oh and, yeah. Uh, he he should have gotten a supporting acting nomination. He's that mm-hmm. good in a comic role. And Clueless is really really. Um, Brittany Murphy to, too. Oh yeah, yeah. like Brittany Murphy. I happen, I happen to prefer Fast Times at Richmond High. Uh, yeah, but thinking heavily. about Fast Times, I mean, would you say that Clu- Clueless is the '90s? Uh, uh, Fast Times was to the '80s teen movie as Clueless is. I think so. No, no. Um, I I go with the uh, Days and Confused. That's the that's the 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 high watermark of teen films of the '90s. Well, I, I just don't think Dazed and Confused is known in the mainstream as Clueless is. I think when, uh, Clueless is more of a, you know, it's a, I mean, we well, like it, it, obviously. Now but, it is. Uh, Dazed and Confused, I mean, Dazed and Confused has taken a long, long time because it was an art film, but now it's it's a pretty mainstream film. Yeah. It's good, though. No argument there. July 7th, First Night, which was Sean Connery, Richard Gere. Who was yeah. the female? Julia Armand? Julia Armand. So. This was One. her uh, her follow up to Leggings of the Fall, and so this is and this is uh, Zucker. This is I was gonna say to, Jerry to Zucker. Ghost. Yeah. yeah, to Ghost. This, he hadn't done a film in five years, uh, so this is follow up to Ghost, and uh, this is uh, the third of the uh, Sword movies to come out this year. Uh, kind of this uh, big scale, big budget, authentic uh, King Arthur story. Uh, Connery obviously is very good as King Arthur. Uh, actually, I like Gear in the film, and the best sequence is when he has to do this um, this obstacle course sequence of the gauntlet, as they call it. And I don't know where it comes from. I don't. I don't think it's part of the King Arthur lore. Uh, it's like a total invention. But at, uh, as a set piece, it's a lot of fun. Something about Richard Gear and obstacle courses. Uh, they're always those are always fun set pieces. Yeah. Often a gentleman. You know, <laughs> yeah, I like that time he was on the hamster wheel. That was good. Too. <laughs> uh, but this is not. This is the the the, the least of these sword movies that came out that year. Uh, so it's, it's you know yeah. it has a couple of nice things, but it's not that great. Yeah. Uh, also on that date, Species, which was a major surprise hit. It was. Spawned a bunch of sequels, too. Oh, terrible as a, as sequels. A, oh, my God. As, a, as an alien knockoff, it's it's just uh, it's a lot of fun. The first one's still a lot of fun. Yeah. You just kind of enjoy the uh, the the uh, the team that they assembled. The, yeah, it's quite Forrest a cast. Forrest Whitaker, as the, Whitaker as the empath, and Michael Madsen is the hunter, and, and you know... Uh, uh, Mark Helgenberger is the like the bioscientist, I think, and you know Ben Kingsley is the evil you mm-hmm. know, leader, and Alfred Molina. Alfred Molina is this dweeb who finally scores with a beautiful girl, only to his detriment. Natasha Hinstrich is obviously she. It, it's a really good performance, and she knows exactly 
what she's being used for, and she plays it to the hilt. And the movie has a lot of fun with this uh, this this theme of uh, this predator woman, basically, you know, going about you know in nightclubs, you know, picking up guys and guys falling falling for her because she's walking around basically barely, basically topless. And she's like, I want, I want to have a baby, and guys freaking out. So there's a lot of, you know, nice little satire <laughs> yeah. going on. It's kind of the reverse version of looking for Mr. Goodbar, really. I mean, that's what. It... Yeah. <laughs> true, true. I mean, it's, right. it's 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 entertaining trash. It's it's fine. It's good. Uh, July. Let's go to July twelfth. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and this brings about a whole subplot of scandal and and how. How it impacted the 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 final gross of the movie, nine months. This was supposed to be a uh, Hugh Grant's big studio uh, rom com movie, Chris right. Columbus, and then he got caught with Divine Brown just right before the movie opened. So it it opened up a whole can of worms that they had to figure out how to deal with. She's a prostitute that he was caught uh, in Hollywood with. And he was engaged to Elizabeth Hurley at the time, I believe. So. Right. But what was the final domestic gross? Uh, oh, the I, final domestic gross. Like $138 have, million, I think. Yeah, that's what I have, too. Um, yeah, I mean, it didn't do poorly. It's just what what would have been had it not been for the scandal. Or who knows? Maybe, right. a, maybe a lot of people were drawn to the movie because of the scandal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, true. This, this notion that I think that people think it, they, they left one on the tape is that – you know, four weddings. You know, I think it it only made forty, fifty million domestically, and that was after weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks in the just you know word of mouth. And then you know his other movies, Bitter Moon, Sirens, Englishman. They you know they didn't uh, you know they didn't they barely. I don't think they, none of them cracked twenty million. Yeah, but this so was a no big chance. this was a big studio right. effort. This was right, supposed right, to this be big, this was from the Home Alone guy. Fox. That's right. right. So now they're giving him the marquee, but this notion that all of a sudden he was going to be make a hundred million dollar rom com is a little uh, ill conceived. I mean, because I mean, there's nothing in his, there's nothing preceding that to prove that. Well, all he needs is a big studio film and he can make a hundred million dollars. He hasn't a track record for that. So the fact that Nine Months made what it made, even with yeah. that scandal. It's pretty I mean, but, much on par. But it's not it's not an unheard of kind of equation. They think that they think that they can score and make this guy even bigger with a big studio movie. And so they cushion it with a big blockbuster director and Robin Williams. You know, right. they kind of cushion the package between, around him. But it's a difference between expect unreasonable expectations and then just being realistic of what you have. But you and understand have, you understand that this was a that this was supposed to be a big studio movie that summer, and you understand how its makers, who had put so much faith in you, Grant, and given right. him this opportunity, would feel so so terribly jilted by what he did. Right, but even if he hadn't done that, I I, I don't think the movie, you know, they they their expectations would have been greater than what they would have gotten. You know, the fact if they were actually thinking that they were going to get a hundred million dollars from that movie, uh, they were just deluding themselves. No matter, there's no scenario where that movie makes a hundred million dollars. Well, okay. uh, I mean, I, I've seen because Hugh Grant and Julianne Moore aren't stars at that time. 
you know, they're not stars. They're up and comers. Right. Uh, you know, so, you know, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's happened. I, I, I mean, it the, happened with I four weddings. The, yeah. Well, four weddings was a word of mouth hit, and it just took weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. They, they're not going to allow nine months to sit there for weeks and weeks and weeks. Well, the thing's and, even called nine months. They give it time. I remember. <laughs> I remember. Uh, I mean, I remember the trailer uh, really leaned on uh, the Robin Williams cameo. Yeah. That was the thing. Yep. You know, they're hoping to bring him in. And uh, when you finally went and saw the movie, which I did, obviously, uh, you know, it's uh, it's a it's a B minus of a of a yeah, comedy. I agree. I I don't think the laughs were there until until Robin Williams popped up at the end. That kind of slapsticky. Yeah. From one birth to the other kind of thing. But uh, yeah, what I remember about that period of time was that it's the was the time when Jay Leno beat David Letterman in the ratings and and. And kept beating him from that point on after he did his Hugh Grant interview in connection to that. Right. Movie. Mm-hmm. As if he had to apologize to us for sleeping with a, sleeping with a prostitute. What I mean, what business is it about? <laughs> yes. It's just all True. ridiculous. Uh, July 14th, The Indian in the cup, Cupboard. Modest film. Frank but, Oz uh, directed. Yeah. One of my favorite books growing up as a kid, and uh, Melissa Matheson uh, did the screenplay. Uh... Really good performance by um, uh, what was it? Uh, uh, David uh, David Keith as the the cowboy. Uh, so really really good movie. Um, so yeah, modest children's film. It should, I thought it should have been a bigger would have been a bigger hit because it was a. I mean that's a very uh, beloved children's book, but uh, just didn't. I think uh, it probably should have been made earlier. Uh, you know, in the 80s, maybe. Uh, and uh, and the direction is fine, but uh, with that screenplay, you kind of, I remember at the time thinking, you know, I know he's not into it anymore, but you kind of wish uh, the Spielberg of the 80s had uh, had uh, done this, and uh, it probably would have been mm-hmm. a, a real, real, a really, really taken off. Agreed. It's a modest film, but it's well, it's well done. Yeah. Uh, what was the one that uh, did you just say it? Harrison Ford's ex-wife wrote. Is that the one? Yeah, Melissa yeah. Madison. Okay. Yeah. Living in Oblivion opened up on that same day. Tom Which, DeCillo, yeah, film uh, with Steve Buscemi in the lead. Good film. Uh, and uh, it's just kind of this film about uh, you know we've had a lot of movies about you know behind the scenes of Hollywood, but here's the the first film I can think of that was about behind the scenes of. Uh, of indie wood, basically indie uh, yeah. filmmaking, and um, the, the the great thing about Living in Oblivion is that uh, James Lagro basically doing a Brad Pitt impersonation because <laughs> uh, uh, Tom DeCillo was settle, settling some scores of how he uh, had clashed with Brad Pitt on the movie uh, Johnny Slade. So James Lagro <laughs> basically doing a a parody of Brad Pitt. Does he have the hair? He has these kind of man- these mannerisms and this kind of all shucks surfer. Because wasn't Johnny type. Swade the one with the huge pompadour? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, which is a film not available on uh, on a DVD or Blu-ray of any kind. And, uh, oh. I think Tom DeCillo on Facebook for a while there he was talking about how he uh, he couldn't get the rights to it. Mm. So but you'll see it on the on the Disney 18 plus uh, platform. 
Okay. <laughs> we'll say that about every movie that's not available. We'll just promise it on that platform. That's the movie that people have forgotten. It, it came out in 92 before River Runs Through It. So people don't know about Johnny Swade. Also on that date, Under Siege 2, Dark Territory. I don't remember Under Siege 2. I remember Under Siege. Here's Here's the deal. When I think of Steven Seagal, I think of him in opposition to somebody like Bruce Willis. We just talked about Die Hard with a Vengeance. He is shredded by the end of Die Hard with a Vengeance. I mean, he is just a bloody stump. Whereas somebody like Seagal, he's he's so much of a pussy action star, he, he refuses to even take a punch. <laughs> he's like, oh, I'm not going to have any blood on me. Uh, that that, that, that now, portrays the, weakness. Under Siege 2 is, is a famous in some film critic circles, as being the, uh, this is a dubious distinction, but being the best film uh, that was not screened for critics. Really? Uh, Yeah, because it wasn't screened for critics, so it was one of those you had to see it opening. It wasn't Andy Davis again, was it? No. No, 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 no. It was another director. Eric Bogosian is the villain. Right, right. I was going to say. Uh, But... There's some amazing fight scenes in there and some great chase, uh, chases on the train. So, I mean, it's, it's probably the last uh, the last good Seagal movie. Okay, and Catherine, yeah. he- Catherine Heigl plays his daughter, and she has nightmare stories about working with Seagal on she that She does. Scene. Yeah. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff Murphy was the director, so. Interesting. Yeah. Jeff Murphy of uh, Utu and uh, uh, Young Guns 2 fame. Mm-hmm. It's true. Well, I don't know if I call it fame. <laughs> Young Guns Two is a good movie. He passed away two years ago. Oh, he did. did he? Yeah. Have you realized that? And Joe, him and Joe Don Baker. <laughs> yes. Don Baker still around? Jeff Murphy no longer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for, let's uh, skip over whatever Dragon Ball Z. I know we don't have anything to say about that. Yeah. July 19th is Free Willy 2. Anybody see Free Willy 2? I've seen it. It's the least of the Free Willy movies. <laughs> of the two? Or, or have there been more? Is the, that one of the those? three, I Okay. It seems like one of those that would be open to one of those uh, make infinite sequels on direct-to-DVD kind of thing. No, it's three theatricals. There was every other year. 93, 95, 97. Mm-hmm. I actually like the, mm-hmm. the third one. Is a good sequel. And the first one's the best. Uh, second one, uh, not so much. Yeah. The fourth one with Marlon Brando, that never came to be, did it? <laughs> uh, Val Kilmer took over. Uh, he actually played Free Will. Yeah, Brando was signed on to do that, yeah. Because he always, it goes back to the Superman thing. Can I just play it as a suitcase? And they're like, well, I was gonna say, we'd like yeah, to cast you to play a whale. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> He would voice the. It would be a talking whale, and he would voice yeah. it and cash his one million dollar paycheck. That's right. July twenty first, an awfully big adventure, and kids. Man, there's some counter programming right there. Well, an awfully big adventure is the other Hugh Grant movie, uh, the third of this summer. Uh, and unlike Englishman in Nine Months, uh, this one's really good because um, he actually plays kind of a. It's the first time he really. Uh, Let's his hair down and plays a real kind of uh, cat jerk of a theater uh, producer, and he's uh, he's a lot of he's really good. It's a good it's a good little film, off the big adventure. Yeah, th- 
this one might uh, actually uh, prove your point about uh, his run-in with Divine Brown killing uh, his film business because it only made $258,000. So. <laughs> okay, and it's not a kid's movie. It sounds like a kid's <laughs> movie, but it's not. It's an R-rated movie, An uh, Awfully Big Adventure. Okay, so strike yeah. that counter-programming thing. Okay. And, uh, saw, I saw kids in theater. I had to, My dad and my older brother took me. I was not of, of eight because it was a... You know, it was a Remember, basically, the Weinsteins had to create their a second distribution company just to release it because Disney would not let them release it. They weren't going to edit it, so I did see it. Now, this is truly, of all the films released in the summer and of this year, this might be the true artifact of 1995, Larry Clark's kids. If you ever want a snapshot of of hype and of indie filmmaking of 1995, uh, you put kids in the time capsule. Uh, It's just just one of those things. Um, It still has some power to it. Chloe Savini's really, really good. Leo Fitzpatrick as the main predatory kid. He's still a powerful presence. Uh, It was just one of those films that it was uh, more taboo-busting at the time than it is now, I think. Uh, I think Larry Clark, uh, Larry Clark's Bully, from six years later, is a far better film, in this same vein. I think that's a tougher movie and a better movie. And so is uh, uh, Another Day in Paradise with James Woods. But uh, Larry mm-hmm. Clark is, I mean, but Kids is that film that does uh, it does grab your attention. Uh, so. That and it does. Yeah, I wasn't much into it. But I, I do recall all the hype that was surrounding it. And all all, the, yeah, it was all over the place. Um, July 28th, the following week, let's talk about, if there's much to say about it, the net. All right, well, so here we go. We got the more of the tech movies coming out. So This one made more money, didn't it, than the other one, I believe. Yeah, and uh, Sandra Bullock, this was uh, her follow-up to While You we Were Sleeping. So another one. So it done well uh, from earlier in the year, and uh, I remember the. Um, I guess the one thing that, that kind of like uh, sticks in my head from the net that was so novel at the time when they had it that she she's a computer person. You know, she works on the computer, and she's such a uh, techie that she she literally has everything delivered to her house. Like she doesn't go out. Mm-hmm. She has her. Groceries delivered, everything delivered. And I remember at the time, I'm like, wow, is that's weird. She has everything delivered. But now, I mean, <laughs> uh, flash forward a few years later, I'm like, not so weird. Uh, so I remember that it was like. Is it Irvin Irvin Winkler Irwin Winkler movie? I think so. And then uh, Dennis, uh, no, uh, Dennis Miller was her. Was like the plus one in the movie, right? Her friend or something. Right, her friend. Uh, great actor. I mean, there's a case where the actor's better than the material with uh, Jeremy Northam. Great actor, Billy. Dennis Miller. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, I mean, he's fine, but so, so net, net, net is truly a, mo- a movie of the moment. I wonder what it would be like to watch it today. I mean, in, in some ways, it's I should. Al- it's almost a mistake to make a movie about technology because it will be outdated in a couple of years, no matter what. Yeah, because I mean, technology it moves at such a rapid pace. Uh, so those movies are always neat artifacts of their time. Operation Dumbo Drop, which is a Disney movie, Danny Glover, and I, I remember the big deal about 
parachuting elephants or something? Or? Yeah, it just looked this terrible, is, and I skipped it. This is the uh, the, the first feel-good Vietnam movie oh, ever made. It was a Vietnam movie, right? Okay, and that's just unusual. Inspired by inspired by true events. Uh huh. Danny Glover, Ray Liotta, Dennis Leary, and apparently a village needs an elephant uh, for some reason. So that basically they're tasked with delivering this elephant to this uh, remote village. Uh, I think Leary says him and Leota, they always talk about the, the houses they got from that movie. Mm-hmm. They bought after that movie. That's the legacy of that movie. Oh. So it's one of those weird, I remember some critics were a little uh, queasy about it. I mean, I'm not so queasy, but they were like, you know, as a, as a children's film, they said, it, you know, they're like, it's fine. But the fact that they're trying to make a light Vietnam movie, they're like a little queasy about it. I, 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 I kind of don't subscribe to that. It's like, look, if it works, it works. It's just this didn't really work even on its own terms. So there you go. You should have had cameos by Charlie Sheen and uh, Willem Dafoe and Tom Berenger. That might have made it a little more uh, palatable. <laughs> yeah. well, I think – didn't Marlon Brando play the elephant? <laughs> Oliver Stone, yeah, exactly. <laughs> His agent was shopping sure, around all the, all the huge animal roles. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Oliver Stone should have directed Operation Numbo Drop. Uh also on that day, look, this movie has generated right. so so much discussion in the the over the years. It was uh, successful when it came out uh, in in opposition to the common narrative, and that's Waterworld, Waterworld that had disaster written all over it. Yep, I remember Fishtar was the right. Calling it. I I remember uh, Entertainment Weekly had the great cover the. Untold history of Waterworld and us. Kevin Costner like spitting water into the camera was the uh, cover image, and uh, he took it over from Kevin Reynolds finishing the directing, uh, editing the post production. Right. Uh, basically, it was Mad Max and Jet Skis, um, and uh, mm-hmm. Dennis Hopper was the villain. The Exxon Valdez was his home base. Um, I went opening weekend like a lot of people, and uh, there's some there's a couple of striking images in it, underwater images. Uh, you know, it's just it's not for as much as it made domestically. I think it made eighty ninety million domestically, uh, and it made most of its money back worldwide. It's just not you know for all the hype, it's just not very memorable considering the premise. The trailer, I remember, was more exciting than the movie. I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's 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 not a terrible movie, but it's uh, it, it's just kind of ho hum. Yeah, I felt you know. the same way. So um, anyway, August third, but you can get this recent Blu-ray from Arrow of Waterworld, right? It's like a it has extended cut. Jesus, what are you riding a horse, Aaron? What's going on with that phone line? Huh. I thought a bomb was going off. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you don't start masturbating till after the show. Here. Okay. Uh, okay. Speaking of masturbation, August fourth, Babe. <laughs> now the fourth of the uh, of the uh, best picture nominees from the summer. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, here is the you know, you know the case of it. You know the talking pig movie that's actually good. James Cromwell made James Cromwell a star after. Yeah. Deck over a decade of nondescript roles. Uh, babe, George uh, Miller. I mean, uh, 
Just yeah. great movie. Great movie. It is. It's it's very good. It's uh it's it's a uh, a good example of a, a a family film that's also intelligent and uh, adults can enjoy it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and far more successful than I'm sure anyone had any idea it would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 quite good. It really is. Also on that day, August fourth, I remember this movie. I remember watching this opening weekend. Uh, Julie Roberts and Dennis Quaid. I think Jenna Rollins was in it. Something to talk about. Jenna, That's right. Jenna Rollins yeah. And uh, Robert Duvall and uh, Kira Sedgwick. Uh, yeah, something to talk about. Kind the of ride with uh, Thelma and Louise, right? I think right. Kelly yeah, Curry. Not a memorable uh, title, but a really, really good film. This was Gilly Roberts, you know, uh, trying to make her, you know, coming back after uh, she'd done Pelican Brief, and then so that was a hit. But then she'd done I Love Trouble, which was not a hit. Uh, and then this one, which was kind of a modest hit. And uh, this is one of her better uh, performances. Leslie really Hallstrom movie. Warner Brothers presents an extraordinary motion picture about a woman confronted with a fact she can't accept. You don't know what it's like to be sitting there with your child while your husband is making out with someone on the street. Sometimes a man doesn't know the value of what he's got until he's lost it. You follow what I'm getting at? A truth she can't escape. Remember how we used to make each other laugh? <laughs> Do you ever wonder if we could ever get back to that? And a chance she can't resist. Let's deal this right now. Eddie, no. Eddie, this isn't funny. Julia Roberts. Robert Duvall. Jenna Rollins. Kira Sedgwick. And Dennis Quaid. Something to talk about. Now, here's a question. Was that movie just named after a popular song? Because I think Something to Talk About became a hit before the movie came out, right? Yeah, Something to Talk About. It was, yeah. It was like five years prior. Yeah, 89, 90. Yeah, that was a great Bonnie Raitt album. Nick of Time. Yeah. I like Have Have a Heart. That's my favorite Bonnie Raitt from that period. Mm -hmm. Which was used in Heart Condition with Denzel Washington and Bob Hoskins. (laughs) <laughs> it really was. That was the that was the theme song from Heart Condition. You remember I, that? I'd forgotten about that. I, yes. I, I try not to remember Heart Condition. Well, we did. We did a show where we talked about that because that was a summer sure release did. a few years before. I'll, I'll take your word for it. Uh, Virtuosity. Uh, speaking of Denzel Washington, Russell Crowe as the villain. Another tech movie. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. This one, uh, I saw this in theaters. This one I thought is the, the most fun of these tech movies that came out that summer. Uh, just because it was so kind of a... This one's a little more, just more audacious and futuristic. And Crow is such a great, uh, fun villain. Uh, so I actually, I actually like Virtuosity. Quite yeah, people like this movie still. Yeah. Uh, so once you're not alone, Aaron. Um... <laughs> the August 9th was the Brothers McMullen, which was the which was another big Sundance uh, story, right? With Ed Burns. Ed Burns what is the winner? This was the the winner, the Grand Jury Prize winner at Sundance. Yeah. So here comes this film. Where did he uh, go? Modest, where, where did he go? First of all, do we know? 
Uh, well, he uh, he he still makes movies. I guess most of his movies now go on uh, to to uh, the VOD or v, uh, DVD, like uh, Good Guy Johnny and uh, The okay. Groomsmen and, yeah, and yeah, a couple yeah. others. And then, mm-hmm. well, remember, uh, I think four or five years ago, he had that uh, one season series on TNT that was actually really really good about the moral police department in New York. That was really really good. Uh, so yeah, they still works. Um, and Brother Hung Mullen, uh, it's a modest film, but it's, uh, you know, also very Sundancey, but mm-hmm. it's good. And, uh, basically it was a calling card movie because, uh, Redford saw it, liked it. And so Redford produced his follow-up movie with a bigger budget, uh, the following year. She's the one. Right. Right. It's true. With a score by Tom Petty. Mm-hmm. Uh, August 11th, Dangerous Minds. Oh, that's the Michelle Pfeiffer movie. And George Zanuda. Yes. Uh, yes, man, that, that movie was a hit, man. Yeah, yeah and it also had the number one record by uh, Coolio, or uh, Coolio. number one song, I should say. Uh, yeah, which people, people didn't realize was just a ripoff of Stevie. Past, That's true. Past Time had, Paradise, yeah. Had a, well, had a, a Stevie Wonder sample. Uh, and so uh, the other teen film of that, of that era that was a big big hit and that uh, that soundtrack is just uh i remember that was the soundtrack of the fall at the my at the in high school yeah i remember what's that soundtrack it's a great video the video is a terrific video with uh directed by a uh, future filmmaker antoine fuqua oh really mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i remember that video it's just michelle pfeiffer sitting in a chair <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> pretty much and uh which is enough about, but you know what more is, could you want the thing about this is uh this was Simpson Bruckheimer trying to do a small film, quote unquote, by their standards, and uh, they got a serious what they thought was a serious filmmaker to do it. This uh, uh, was it John Smith, I think is his name, John M. Smith, and he had done a movie the year before uh, that a lot of critics loved. That movie saw called The Boys of Saint Vincent, mm-hmm. about uh, uh, a predator priest uh, by was starring Henry. Uh, Tierney, which is a great, great film that no one's ever seen. Uh, so this was his big studio uh, film, and Simpson, Simpson Bruckheimer did. Uh, the fun factoid of this film, Andy Garcia's role was totally cut out the film. Mm. Played uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's uh, boyfriend, and mm. I guess it didn't test well, or they just thought, you know what, we don't need it, so he, they, he, he'd never know she had a boyfriend in the movie. Wow. That's something. I wonder if they reshot anything, or if they just if they were able to do that through editing. Mm. That's something. That's something when you can cancel cancel out an entire character who, I'm sure, was a a semi important part of the story. Yeah. Who want to talk about a kid in King Arthur's court or a walk in the clouds? Walk in the clouds. I'm a big fan of Walk in the Clouds. It's a really really sweet movie. Yeah, this is the the Keanu, this is the good Keanu Reeves movie that summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, great uh, late Anthony Quinn performance. Uh, and uh, I was going to mention that. Yes. Yeah, Reeves is just fun. This is this is we Reeves at his just his most leading man, charming best in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the visuals in this movie uh, are just uh, some of the, some of the visuals are stunning. Still holds up. Good stuff. August 16th, The Usual Suspects, Brian Singer, which Awkward. was, uh, talk talk about a huge surprise hit. 
Do we think it's overrated or? Yes, uh, I thought it was overrated at the time. Look, I I did not think that the twist was overrated. I love the twist. I remember when I first saw it, but Mm -hmm. it's it's one of those where uh, where I think the the impact of that twist uh, kind of informed the impression of the rest of the movie, which I didn't think was as as good. Yeah, and I love Roger Ebert. Broke down how uh, the uh, the twist really makes no sense when you think about it. He he did an essay on that and broke it down somehow, and he made a good argument, a good case for it. Yeah. And I I wonder, even after I read anyone, that, I thought well, maybe the twist isn't so good. Has <laughs> anyone watched the um, the making of doc on YouTube? That's you know from the DVD. It's like the the forty minute you know making of I have doc. Not. I haven't. I need um, to see that. It's kind of awesome. And that uh, if you can get past the um, the uh, the now what seems like kind of uh, forced camaraderie, you know, like hey, these are my boys, you know, these are all my, you know, we're all band of brothers here. Yeah. I'm like really? Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you get past that part, my the the best stuff is um the the rather uh barely uh hidden animosity between Stephen Baldwin and Kevin Pollock. Uh-huh. Uh huh. <laughs> that stuff is just priceless and. Stephen Baldwin's rather humorless uh, testimonials of uh, of the film on you know how how the film has just impacted uh, around its impact around the world. He goes, I at one point he goes, I, I, uh, I people come up to me all the time and said every weekend we have usual suspect viewing parties and we take notes well, that's and weird. we always find something we always find something new about the film. I do remember that it was like the coming out of uh, Benicio del Toro in a major way. I mean, that, that's was, a movie yeah. where people notice who the what the hell is this guy doing? Because he <laughs> and, and and the singer and I think the other co-stars even spoke to it too. Like they had no idea it would be played that way. Like Benicio was so outside the box in the way he approached that character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so he's great. And um, it's just uh, I, I just rewatched the movie a couple months. Three months ago, it was on Showtime was showing it, and uh, it's still, you know, it's still kind of, I guess, quote unquote, holds up, all things considered. But it's just one of those. It's now one of these weird artifacts now, considering not only Brian Singer but Spacey at the center. Mm. Oh yeah. One of these weird. Yeah, that's true. Wow. Viewing double whammy. Wow. So, so every time I every time it comes up, I go, I just yell out the word awkward, because uh, it's just a weird. And a related story. And, I uh I was listening to uh, Alec Baldwin's podcast the other day and he was interviewing people about the art world. And he was interviewing this one art curator about his collection and galleries that he opened and people he tried to bring in over the history of his career and he was talking about one Francis Bacon exhibit he did in New York City. And Alec was like, "Have you ever met Francis Bacon?" and he said, "No." I talked to him on the phone and I invited him to the gallery show and he gave his blessing and he said, I'll come to New York if you can find me some young boys. Wow. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. And that's when Baldwin said, and, and we'll be back after these messages. Uh, <laughs> Good night, everybody. Okay. So, yeah, so, so, as far as the twist of suspect, yeah, it is kind of one of those mind-blowing twists when you hear, but What's weird about the ego suspect, you realize that once you get that twist, that you've actually spent two hours uh-huh. trying to follow everything this guy's saying and, 
you know, piece it all together in your head yourself, and you realize you've exerted all this energy for no reason. Like, it served no purpose. Pretty much. I, I have distinct so. memories. I was doing theater, uh, a lot of plays at the time, and I remember the writer was from the area, if I recall. Was Christopher well, McQuarrie. Right Chris, Christopher, yeah. McQuarrie yeah. Christopher McQuarrie and Brian Singer had something to do with something in the area because Key, Cha- Key Exchange or something, a movie they had done together previously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I remember being backstage in the theater and everybody talking about them. And they have this new movie coming out, Usual Suspects, and it's going to be the next big thing. And, you know, I don't know. August 18th. Let's, let's move on from the pedophilia. August 18th, <laughs> we have... We have both the Babysitters Club and Mortal Kombat. Man, let me tell you, there was this kid that worked for me. I always go back to the theater stories. Who was obsessed with Mortal Kombat? He could talk about nothing else. He he was like this video game savant. That's all he all all that consumed him. And so I refriended him last year. Twenty five years have passed. He was still going on about Mortal Kombat. <laughs> <laughs> And now he's married with three kids. Uh, yeah, Mortal Kombat. What I remember of that film, uh, one, it was at that time the most violent video game movie film of the, up to that point. And uh, it was actually a good rendering of the game in film form. And I just remember that had one of the most uh, temple-pounding score soundtracks I had ever heard in a theater and I'm just talking about the trailer, uh, not not even the movie. That that movie just was just. I mean, you saw you know, Braveheart and Die Hard with a Vengeance, you know, overwhelmed you. The Mortal Kombat movie was just. I mean, that was a precursor to Michael Bay. That was sensory overload with that movie. Uh, and so yeah, that was a crazy movie. I'm surprised. He, I'm it. surprised he hasn't remade that since he did Teenage Mutants and. Mm-hmm. Well, they, know, well didn't, right. they do a, they, didn't they do a sequel like almost ten years later? And yeah, there, like, there was something a, a couple of years ago, wasn't there? Yeah, they did a sequel like ten years later, and I remember at the time I was like, "Well, that's a little late for a sequel." And, and the sequel was a hit; like mm. the sequel opened big. I was like, I, <laughs> "That blew me away." So yeah, let's go to the next weekend. Uh, here's a release we can talk a little bit about: uh, Beyond Rangoon, which was. Our, I do remember seeing Beyond Rangoon opening weekend, and I liked it a lot. I, and and uh, it's a John Borman film. This was a material yeah. that seemed right up his alley. Patricia Arquette's the lead in the film, and it has a just a really superb Hans Zimmer score. Back when his mm-hmm. scores were uh, distinctive. Well, you didn't like Dunkirk. You don't need a Dunkirk. No, you're, uh, d- you know the second you said the score of Mortal Kombat pl- plummets, pum- pummels you. I thought of Dunkirk and Hans Zimmer. Yeah. That's the Same first here. thing that came to mind. <laughs> now, what's better, score Hans Zimmer, this one or Crimson Tide? For the Crimson Tide, that... that well, Crimson Tide is in the... I mean, he, he he did very specific scores for Bruckheimer Simpson. I mean, that's in the rock category. It's it, it it's it's hard pounding, but I think effective and melodic. It it's got a melody yeah. to it. But uh, Beyond Rangoon is a very exotic score. It's of it's of the the region. Uh, which is Burma. Um, you know, it's a political action movie, essentially beyond Rangoon. And I, I liked it. I have not returned to it since. But I remember feeling uh, positively about it. 
And it wasn't about spaghetti. I mean, it was Rangoon. It wasn't Ragu. It's it's not Ragu. Not Ragu. Yeah, some people got confused. Beyond Ragu? Beyond Ragu? Head starring Chef Boyardee. Uh, okay. Also on that day, Desperado, which was uh, the studio version, right, uh, of Robert Rodriguez's um, El Mariachi. Yeah. Here he got 3.5 million, I think, in the budget, and so it was uh, Antonio Banderas's first starring role, English-speaking starring role. Uh, Steve Buscemi, Sama Hayek, uh, and this was kind of um, the uh, first of this type of. Uh, this kind of Americanized of the splatter action, of, you know, the, the this is where we're getting the the Americanized Hong Kong action. Mm-hmm. You know, Basant had had done a little of this with the professional year earlier, but Rodriguez was taking it to he was cranking it to eleven, and Desperado is one of those deals. Buscemi is awesome in the film, and uh, in his in a supporting role, Cheech Manning's a good villain in the role. He has you know in the couple of scenes, Tarantino has a cameo. That was a kind of a no-brainer to do at the time, and uh, it's a fun film. It's of the Mariachi. I mean, El Mariachi is probably the best of the three, and then this one's really, really. It's almost as good. And then uh, you get the Once Upon a Time in Mexico in 2003. Uh, but uh, Desperado, yeah, it was one of those. It it doesn't have much of a story. Uh, neither did El Mariachi. It just was Rodriguez showing you, you know, just you know all these tricks he had. And you also have Salma Hayek. Okay, that same day, and this might be the last movie we talk about, is, I'm sorry, I'm eating a cookie. <laughs> Clive Barker and um, Lord of Illusions. And who was his lead, Craig? What was his name? Burko. 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 Yeah. Birko. Uh, but also, uh, this was also uh, Scott Bakula. Right. Yeah. Um, I didn't... I've actually... I, I did not see this. The 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 story is that this is actually one of the better Clive Barker movies. Oh no that, no no! Uh, that Craig Barker guy was Nightbreed. Sorry. Okay, this is Scott Bakula, and uh, this is the word is this is one of the better Clive Barker movies. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, but also that there's a, um, I think on the DVD there's a uh, director's cut that uh, some of the Barker fans prefer to the uh, theatrical. Um, so I don't know what the top big of a difference that is, um, but I do know this one does get a little more uh, respect than, let's say, uh, Hellraiser. Uh, you it know, does. Of a bar- yeah. Well, uh, I thought Hellraiser was a pretty big thing among the amongst the horror set. Well, yeah. Uh, so I think this one, has, from what I've heard, has a better story. Um, I, like I said, but I have not seen it. I've not seen. It. So, don't know. Yeah. Obviously, it's one of those, you know, you know, this is back in the day when, um, you know, the last couple of weeks of August, there was just kind of this uh, dumping ground kind of thing. Yeah. Kind of like now, you know. You know, that, that is one thing. You know, now we're, you know, we're in the last week of August and we're getting actually some quality stuff. You know, Bill and Ted face the music, you know, it's actually a film that's actually, you know, you know, well done. Uh, so, you know, you know, we weren't getting that 25 years ago. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I used to yeah, I used to really like Clive Barker back in the day. Uh, I, I don't read so much fiction anymore, but I remember his uh, bag, uh, bag of Bones, which I think is being made into a series now. And uh, Weave World was like, especially that was like his fantasy. Uh, 
Oh, yeah. Um, and I, I did, just two weeks ago, I rewatched the first Hellraiser. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it's got its moments. I remember seeing it when it opened in theaters, too. Uh, but in general, I did, didn't really like it very much. I didn't either, and I saw it as a 16-year-old kid, and uh, just I, I remember, and I was a big horror fan at the time, and I was like, eh, not for me. I mean, the score helps <laughs> so, tremendously. Did you see that by yourself, or did you and Mom see that? I saw it by myself, actually. My mom would just, uh, I was lucky in that my mom would just dump me off at the theater and uh, come back two hours later, and I had carte blanche to see whatever I wanted to see. So. <laughs> yeah, but Hellraiser, I, I remember the press on Hellraiser, and they said there's a new voice in horror, and you know, it was very hyped. Yeah. Oh, and, yes, um, it was. Jamie, you by yourself, or you see with Mom? Uh, I think I, it was one of them that I saw myself. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think my mother was interested in seeing Hellraiser. No, nobody in my family was. Hi, dear. Let's go see Hellraiser. <laughs> that, that would never come out of my mother's mouth. Exactly. Well, there you go. How That's about it. That? Summer of 1995. Obviously. Four of the five. Four of the five best picture nominees that summer. There were Anyone great. Wanna... There were great movies to come. Whether it be you know. Clockers or Heat or Seven or uh, ninety five Dead Man Dead Man Walking Leaving Las Vegas. There were so many movies out of nineteen ninety five that I absolutely adored. Showgirls, yeah. Casino, Nixon. <laughs> That's right, Scarlet Casino. Letter. Yeah. Yep. Scarlet Letter, Money Train, <laughs> How to Make an America Quilt, Moonlight Valentino. <laughs> now, 95 was a great 95 had a, a a great number of truly great films that i can continue to return to so that was a, a magical year in, in filmmaking i think to wong fu yeah, yeah there yeah. were there were some good ones here. We'll i mean you can't that. you can't release 500 movies and have them all be perfect nope. and i'm not i'm not talking about the movie perfect <laughs> that would be hell <laughs> that would be hell if 500 movies were just like perfect Get short, well, get shorty. It's, yeah. Uh, also, that year, Jade. You can figure Jade. I rewatched Jade last week. <laughs> That's I funny. like. I'm a, I'm a Jade. I'm a Jade believer. I'm a Jade defender. I know you. I'm sure you are. Yeah. <laughs>